is April Deering who's going to present on the first 2000 days framework. April Deering is the Acting Director of Maternity, Child and Family Health, Social Policy Branch for New South Wales Health. Thank you April. Good morning everyone. I'd like to start today by acknowledging that we are meeting on Aboriginal land and I'd like to pay my respects to any Aboriginal people present today to elders past and present and those emerging who will be our future. Thank you. Uh, I'm delighted to be here today speaking to you. Um, it was a position I had to fight for. Normally my colleague uh, Elizabeth Murphy gets to present to all of these groups but today I've won and I'm here to talk to you. <laughs> um, if, how many people have already seen Liz present this? A few, right. Feel free to give me feedback afterwards in secret about how different it is when I do it. <laughs> um, the other thing I'd just like to acknowledge up front is that these are the slides that she normally does present. I will skip over some of them. It's a reasonably long presentation, but what I've got at the end is some new material that those of you who've seen it before probably won't have seen on the implementation strategy and the progress that we're making towards that. So if you've got questions about implementation as we go through, maybe hold them until we've covered that bit and then we can cover off any questions that way. Otherwise, I'm quite happy for you to interrupt and I'll try to keep to time anyway. Um, I'd also like to mention that I'm not here alone today. My colleague Daphne Shakespeare from the maternity and newborn team is here. Um, in support, but also if there are questions around maternal and newborn issues, I may phone a friend. <laughs> I, uh, I'm acting director at today for two weeks, but um, my normal role is as manager of child and family health. I've been working in the ministry for about the last 15 years on child and family health and related things. Um, but before that I worked in local health districts and among my roles was one where I was a social worker in maternity and it's a time that I often think of. Uh, I've worked a lot with families, a lot with pregnant women and I carry that with me everywhere I go. One of the delightful things about working on the first 2000 days strategy is that it's been an opportunity to bring together so much that we already knew into a new format and incorporating new evidence. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that as we go through today. Why is the first 2,000 days important? Well, and I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir when I'm saying this, 90% of a child's brain develops before the age of five. An enormous amount of that happens before they're actually born. So that period from conception to age five, which is what we're talking about when we talk about the first 2,000 days, actually shapes an entire lifetime. And that's when brains are built. You can, in the future, make changes, you can tweak things, but the brain is only built once. After that, it's the foundation for everything that comes after. Why 2,000 days? Well, it's a good question, and we've been asked a number of times. 
Over the years, over the last century, life expectancy has changed enormously. And most people born today in Australia can now expect to live about 30,000 days. Of course, unfortunately, if you are Aboriginal, that is not what your expectation is. And Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children still are expected to live about 10 years less than other children born today. The first 2,000 days covers that period from conception through to when a child starts school or thereabouts. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the first 1,000 days, so zero to three, which is the prime time for brain development. New South Wales has chosen 2,000 days because we know that that period from three to five, we can still make an enormous difference to children's development and often for those things that we can't pick up before they turn three. So for us, it was still an important time for intervention and we wanted to include the whole 2,000 days. We're building on a huge amount of evidence. Uh, how many of you were involved with Families First or Families New South Wales when it came out? Yeah? You remember all that new evidence that we looked at and how exciting it was? All the changes that we made as a result of that? We're building on those. We are not starting from a greenfield site with 2,000 days, and we're not expecting in implementation that we're starting from that either. We know that we have some fantastic services that are already operating and that we will build on. But what we do have is new evidence coming out all the time. And the evidence I'm going to talk through today will cover some of the old stuff, but we'll talk about how the new evidence on the mechanisms of development is changing how we think about what to do. It's, it's, a, it's a new way of thinking. Um, for those of us who were alive and working back in 1992, uh, this was the thinking at the time when the National Health Goals and Targets for Australian Children and Youth were first set. And for most of the first three, they were fairly easy to measure, fairly easy to look at. That fourth one was a new idea at the time. The fact that the, the conditions that plague our system later in life, cardiovascular, a whole range of other conditions, may actually have their origins in childhood or adolescence was a new idea. The committee that put together the goals and targets thought maybe we can reduce the impact with a bit of early intervention, but they were thinking about late childhood and early adolescence. It hadn't actually occurred to them to look before that. And the antenatal period isn't even there. And yet now we think very differently. As I said, we're building on an enormously important and well thought through system of care. You can see there our first baby clinic that opened in Alexandria in 1914, um, offering clinic-based services, but we've also had home visiting for a long time. So midwives and child and family health nurses were home visiting in 1904, and you can see there that the health department provided up-to-date current vehicles for that. <laughs> and we had cutting-edge therapy dogs to accompany the home visitors as well. <laughs> Before we actually move into the rest of the presentation proper, there are a few things to note. We're talking about population health data. We're not talking about individuals per se. When we're talking about the risk of certain outcomes, 
That's what we're talking about, and risk is not destiny. There are always exceptions. If you look at the example of smoking, how many people know someone who smoked all their life and never got lung cancer? Or someone who never smoked a cigarette and got lung cancer? But we know that smoking increases your risk of lung cancer. And that's what we mean by risk is not destiny. Just because there are things that we know you are more at risk of doesn't mean that you are definitely going to get them. So just remember that as we go through. Liz um, likes to warn people not to take this personally because of, of that, but I still carry some resentment that these messages started to come through just after my daughter's fifth birthday, when I'd already stuffed it all up. <laughs> and you may find that you're thinking that way too. But there, um, there is always resilience. And there are a lot of things that are resilience factors that we always have to balance against risk, both in our own lives but also in our assessment of women and children and families. We need to think about both sides of the coin. So that's just a few things to remember. Now, Liz and I prepared this presentation together and she's the one who always presents it, but I need to acknowledge that while I'm a social worker, she's a doctor. So we had to have the A, B, C, D, E because, you know, it reflects not airway, breathing, circulation, but near enough for the doctor to feel comfortable with it. So hopefully it'll give you some comfort too. So we'll be moving through the antenatal implications, brain and brain development, childhood experience, domestic violence as an example of those sorts of experiences and factors that can make a massive difference going forward, and epigenetics and environment. So in the antenatal, physical health, psychosocial health and future health are all key aspects of what the evidence tells us about the antenatal period. Um, I think that I can assume that this audience is pretty much across that. So I'll just note a couple of things. Remember the 1992 goals and targets that we looked at a couple of minutes ago? Back then, things like disability, people thought that we could reduce the impact of disability. It hadn't actually occurred to medical people or others at the time that by including a water-soluble vitamin in our food prior to conception and in the first three months, we could reduce the incidence of spina bifida to the extent that we have today, where rather than having wards full of children, with the effects of spina bifida, they're looking at actually taking it out of the medical curriculum now for doctors in training because they hardly ever see it. Um, rubella. Rubella is hardly ever seen now. I have a cousin who is deaf because her mother had rubella while she was pregnant. Um, that doesn't happen anymore. The, the impact of those sorts of diseases has gone. So. And gestational diabetes, I don't need to go into detail with you. But there is so much that evidence can tell us about what we can do to improve physical health in pregnancy that impacts that child for the rest of their life. Psychosocial health. Supporting families' early policy and safe start. Who here is familiar with that? Oh, come on, there must be more of you. <laughs> When we put that policy out in 2010, I am very aware that most of you were already implementing off the draft. 
But we in New South Wales have been leaders in actually offering screening for women antenatally and postnatally for postnatal depression and anxiety. It is still one of the leading issues that interferes with good parent-infant attachment. And you can see there on the slide how prevalent it is for not just for women, but also for men, for dads. Now this year we will be kicking off a pilot um, to look at offering digital psychosocial screening for dads during pregnancy and in the early postnatal period. So that's an exciting new project that we'll have up and running soon. So watch this space for more. The Western Sydney Australian Pregnancy Cohort Study also gives us a whole lot more information about those psychosocial factors in pregnancy which are really important. Um, how many of you are aware of the RAIN study? Is that something that you've looked at? Yeah. It, it was um, a source of uh, amusement, I guess, to us that Liz went overseas, heard a presentation on the RAIN study, came back and said, oh, there's this fantastic study happening in Western Australia. It's brilliant. And someone else who's actually part of our broader unit turned around and said, well, yeah, I'm an investigator on that. <laughs> so case in point, we need to talk more across the system. We need continuity of knowledge as well as continuity of everything else. But this is a fantastic study in that it's tracked for a cohort of women, the number of stressful events they experienced in pregnancy, tracked in real time, so while they were still pregnant, the type of stressful events and the timing of stressful events, and it's looked at the impact of that on child behaviour later in life. So this slide gives you an idea of the stressful life events that they looked at. And then, this is how the obstetric data panned out. And here we're looking at the number of stressful events and a measure of, um, I think it was on the strengths and difficulties questionnaire, of child, um, basically abnormal behaviour at, um, pretty sure that was about 13 years of age. I didn't put my glasses on, I can't read the slide from here, sorry. So what you can see there is by the time you get up to about four or five of those stressful events experienced in pregnancy, the likelihood of those poorer behavioural outcomes for children skyrockets. The implications of that, well, if we actually look at what is happening for that woman in pregnancy, and if we can actually reduce the stress in her life down to three or four events rather than five or six, what difference may that make to the outcomes for her and the child? So when we look at our psychosocial impacts in pregnancy, we know that there's a huge amount we can do in the first 2,000 days of life to actually change those outcomes. There are other studies that support the same hypothesis. So this one's from overseas, it's um, from Europe, and it looked at the possible, sorry, it looked at the impact of whether or not women took their antidepressants, so this is women who were already depressed, who were being treated, whether or not they took their antidepressants in pregnancy or, as many women do, chose to come off their medication while they were pregnant. And the outcome of that you can see here. So when we look at the outcomes at seven years of age for those kids, and this is on the strengths and difficulties questionnaire, um, the, the kids that were actually exhibiting behavioural problems are actually mapped here against whether the mum was on antidepressants in the blue, 
went off her antidepressants, had untreated depression in the green, or was unexposed, so not, not depressed, not using antidepressants in the red. And I think that it is fairly clear from that graph the impact of untreated depression on the baby during the pregnancy. Essentially, that baby is bathing in the toxins of depression during the pregnancy. And you can see the improvement with treated depression using antidepressants in pregnancy. So we know that that environment, while that woman is pregnant, that that child is growing in, has such a massive impact. I think you all know about the research on alcohol. You can see there that alcohol in pregnancy affects not only the brain structure, but if you look at the difference between those two images, the alcohol-affected brain is much smaller than the brain that was not affected by alcohol in pregnancy. So exposure to alcohol in pregnancy has a number of impacts. There are a number of factors that actually come into play when we look at what impact alcohol has, and it's different for each woman. We cannot predict what the impact on that specific baby is going to be. So the safest thing is not to consume alcohol when you're pregnant or breastfeeding, and those are, in fact, the policy recommendations. Um, breastfeeding is a difficult one. I think um, we're talking to child and family health nurses uh, a bit uh, it's next month, isn't it? Yes, we're still in August. <laughs> we're talking with the child and family health nurses here again next month, but my understanding from colleagues is that with child and family, one of the biggest questions they get when women come in is, when can I time my, my drinks so that I can breastfeed and, and still have a champagne or a wine? So, and there are apps that you can get to time your drinks around your breastfeeding, but we still need to be delivering that message that it impacts your baby's brain development. So you need to make an informed decision about whether you drink at all, let alone when you time your drinks. We've got a whole lot of emerging evidence around the developmental origins of health and disease, which is a really exciting area of work. We've got some people leading that research here in Sydney. Um, there's a collaboration of researchers called the Early, Li Early Life Determinants of Health Group, and there's a lot uh, that we are contributing as, as a state to this area of knowledge. But it is a new area of knowledge and a new idea in the last 20 or so years that while we are developing, that's when we lay down the blueprint for what diseases we may or may not have in later life. We all know Dr. Barker? No? Yes? Yes. How many of you have seen Liz present before and if I put up a slide of Ethel Burnside would know who she was? Anyone? You do? Fantastic. Ethel Burnside was one of the amazing midwives who contributed to all of those records you can see surrounding Dr. Barker in the picture. Dr. Barker took all of those records, made by Ethel Burnside and her colleagues, Ethel was a great midwife, um, and based his research on those records. And that was what enabled him to come up with the theory about the fetal origins of disease. So this came out in 1995. Remember our goals and targets came out in 1992. Three years later, the research came out that said, looking at childhood and adolescence isn't enough. Look at the correlation between low birth weight and 
heart disease in later life. And since then, we've had more and more coming out about not just heart disease, but other forms of disease, and the fact that antenatal experience contributes to what you're experiencing down the track, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. So this was a really important turning point. In terms of brain development, this is one of the new studies in New South Wales that's really contributing to the evidence. Um, every week counts. Anyone participating in that here? It's a study, yep. Well, feel free if you want to jump up and interrupt me or if I say something wrong. <laughs> this is a study that's happening across a number of hospitals. I think CEC, University of Sydney are involved, Sydney LHD, uh, Northern Sydney LHD. Anyone else I should mention? That's about it. And it's looking at what happens when you are born at a certain number of weeks by outcome. One of the really interesting things that's coming out of this study, well, there's a couple. So the first one is you can see in this, which is the brochure from the Every Week Counts study, and if you want a copy, you can get on and register online and they will send you one. Um, you can see how much of the brain grows in those last few weeks of pregnancy. So if you look at that diagram of the last five weeks, look at the difference between being born at 35 weeks with the size of the brain versus 40 weeks. And then think about the number of babies who might be induced at 38 weeks because mum's over being pregnant. And think about whether the knowledge that this much brain development is occurring may or may not have changed her decision if she had access to that information. So this kind of study will allow us to give much more accurate and better informed information to consumers that they can then factor into their decision making. Um, the other thing that's quite interesting is that they've managed to link data, and I don't have that slide, they've managed to link data in this study to the Australian Early Development Census and to NAPLAN, and you can actually see both um, poorer development based on number of weeks gestation, so the earlier you're born, the bigger the impact, the negative impact on your development, and that carries through to your performance in education. So if women who have an option where it's not medically indicated to um, be induced early, if women who have the option choose to hang on for a couple more weeks, it can make a massive difference to outcomes for their children. And one of the things that um, we believe is where this is coming out of the research, we actually have a responsibility to let consumers know that that's what the research is saying. This is a picture of the night sky in New South Wales. Lots of stars. We can't see those so easily in Sydney with all the lights. But it's one of the ways that Liz in particular, because she spends a lot of time in rural New South Wales, likes to use to get across the concept of trillions. Because it's not something that is very easy for us to conceptualise. But if you look at this and you think about all those little points of light not connected, this is what the neurons in a baby's brain are like when they're born. Trillions of neurons there, not many connections. So at birth, there's about 50 trillion connections between all of those neurons. In the first few months, that increases to a thousand trillion connections. And what builds those connections? It's experience. Experience determines which pathways are formed, and if you have repeated experiences, 
those pathways become stronger and stronger. Pathways that you're not using fade away. In some of the literature, they'll use the term pruning to describe what happens. But experience is wire channels. If you have, in those early days and throughout your early years, experiences that are predominantly around emotions of love and affection and being cared for, those are the pathways that are going to be wired in your brain. If you have experiences that are those of anger, aggression, not being cared for, those are the pathways that are wired into your brain. And in turn, those pathways go on to inform the way that your body creates your adrenal system, your other systems that then govern how you respond to stress for the rest of your life and those sorts of processes. It's a really powerful time uh, and one where we want to promote the best parent-infant attachment and have parents in the best possible place to develop those relationships with their children that are really around those positive pathways. You can see on the, um, on the growth chart for head circumference just how rapid the growth is in those first few months. Um, do, do most of you actually look in the blue book and have a look at the charts? Yeah. So the, the, the brain growth in that period, because, you know, we might... Liz said to me once, you know, until I really thought about it, I thought about the head growing, but I didn't really think about the brain growing. And I thought, well, if a paediatrician can admit to that, then I can admit to it too. Um, but, you know, thinking deeply about what's actually happening inside that little head as it grows and all those connections that are growing in that period is, is something that we can think about and it's a tool that we can actually use to describe to parents just how fast things are growing. The remaining Romanian orphanage study, which I think, have most of you seen this before? Yeah. So you know that this is one of the um, most emotive and most powerful pieces of evidence that we have about what happens when you don't get that love and affection and what happens to the brain. So in one sense it was a natural experiment because a lot of countries tried to come to the rescue of the Romanian orphans under the Ceausescu regime. Um, they were adopted out, a number of them, into places like Canada, particularly. Uh, and then there was follow-up done on those kids who were adopted, mostly into middle-class homes, and usually after eight months or more in the orphanages. So at 11 years of age, um, in contrast to children adopted before eight months, there was abnormal brain development that continued, there was low metabolic activity, abnormal EEG, social and cognitive problems to the point of disability for a lot of these kids, um, and high vulnerability to behavioural problems, including ADHD, aggression and quasi-autism. Why was that? Well, for those of you who haven't seen this slide, and there probably aren't many of you, this slide gives you um, a picture from a PET scan which shows the difference between a neglected brain of a child and a child who didn't experience neglect. The fact is that neglect means that that child's brain just failed to grow. It's not even that there are connections there that can be used for something else. You can see that dark area that means the connections just aren't there. Uh, and it's a scary thought that that's what neglect does. 
So some things can develop later, but there are some things that you're basically stuck with a poor foundation to build on. Probably one of the areas of development that is best known for having fairly concrete um, sensitive periods of development is vision. So I can remember learning this as a psych student back in a century that I won't talk about because it was so long ago. Um, and they did animal studies originally on this, but same thing with people. So if a baby is born with cataracts, for example, and those are not detected, then the, the visual pathways that sit behind that will not develop. If that child then gets past that sensitive period for vision development, so you can see on there that that period wane, starts to wane at about two for binocular vision, and is basically the windows closing by four to five years. If you remove the cataracts at that point, the eye as an organ is completely normal, but that child will never see because the pathways have not developed in the brain. Now, there are some other areas where it's more malleable later in life, but the fact is even with those developmental areas that are more malleable, you're going to have to work harder, put a lot more input in, and probably not get as much progress for that child. What that means is, for those children who have a poor start, we want to get them help as early as possible and we want to keep helping them. It doesn't mean it's all lost. It means that we need to actually put in that effort to try to get them to the optimal development that they can achieve at that point. But the other thing that it means is, wherever we've got the opportunity, we want to get in while we can make the biggest difference to that child for the least effort, because it's easier for them and they will get a better result. Um, and I guess for the system, it's a much more efficient use of resources as well. For the same amount of money, you might be able to help 20 children as opposed to one, or 30 children as opposed to one, if we can get in earlier and actually get that help early in life. So there's a lot of really good reasons why we'd want to get in early. Are there any questions about that slide? Does that make sense? Good. One of the other things that's changed in recent years is the amount of uh, information we can get out of data. We've got better collection systems, and thank you all of you who keep those records so well, you modern Ethel Burnsides with access to computers. Um, but the other thing is we've got access to big data, population-based data linkage that can show us quite incredible things at a population level. Um, one of the things you may not have seen that came out in the last month is a report from Their Futures Matter on New South Wales children that has linked data from across government, across all sorts of places. It's up on the TFM website and I would recommend you have a look at the report. Uh, if you can't find it, find my email on the system. I don't think there's too many April Deerings in our health system, um, but Amy's got my email. Um, and I can flick you the, the link, but the, it, it's a massive report, but the information that we can now get from data is incredible. And it tells us a huge amount about the impact on children. The Australian Early Development Census is done every three years, and we have access to data by practically postcode level from that, and you can get on and see that data. Um, and we now have it linked so that we can see what is happening in pregnancy, what is happening after birth, 
what's happening when children start school with the, uh, with the development census, and then what is happening in terms of that impact on their education through NAPLAN, and it's quite amazing. We've also got some fantastic New South Wales studies. There's one called the Child Development Study. Um, some of the key researchers there are Vaughan Carr and Melissa Green. They've got a cohort of kids that they've followed through. Um, they're now 15. I know this because my daughter's in there. <laughs> um, but what they've done is they've linked antenatal maternal records and antenatal paternal records. They've got health records. They've got the child's records from the time that they're born. So it's across all areas of health, including mental health. Um, they've got facts data in there. They've got the education data in there. Um, they're getting police data and justice data all into this massive data set for this cohort of children. And the things that they can pull out of that are incredible. One of the things that they're working on with us is publishing a number of papers that identify the key things that you might see in the antenatal period that will identify whether those kids at 13 will end up in mental health care. And there are some very strong indicators that are coming out through that study. So that's another good one to have a look at. And again, I do have um, studies available if you want to have a look at that. But the bottom line is that, and this is from a UK government paper, so we know it must be true if it's the UK government. If we don't get in early, we make it that much harder for the children and that much harder for us. Because we know that a child's developmental status at just 22 months of age is one of the best predictors we have for their educational outcomes at 26 years of age. Yeah, this is where the cameras come out if you haven't got yours up already, because this is a really scary slide. Um, will I admit that I went back and looked at what my kids were doing at 22 months? No, I won't admit that. <laughs> but um, so at 22 months, we can actually see what is going to be happening later in life for most kids. Now, there's a very scary thing about that that we'll talk a bit later. So I'll ask you to just remember that slide when we look at the um, brighter futures, let me, uh, bright tomorrow start today material. Childhood experience. How many people have heard of the ACE study? Yep, most people know about ACE now. Adverse childhood experiences study um, has shown us exactly how negative experiences in the early years have long-lasting effects that can be difficult to overcome in later life. Now, there's a few different things that the ACE studies tell us. Um, there is a strong and graded relationship to health-related behaviours and outcomes, and those two things are a bit independent of each other. Um, I'm going to play you a video on this, so I'm not going to talk about it a lot. It'll give you a break from the sound of my voice. But you can see the, the broad range of things that adverse childhood experiences are related to and the impact throughout life. It's a massive study. I'm going to skip ahead. These are adverse childhood experiences. You get a score out of 10 that covers the three different kinds of abuse, two kinds of neglect, and five kinds of household dysfunction. That's what makes up the ACE score. Uh, and it's related to outcomes not only at the end of life, but throughout life. So this gives you an idea of the breadth of outcomes that adverse childhood experiences are related to. And this is just one of those relationships expressed as graphs. 
So you can see there the strong graded relationship to significant um, developmental impairment. The first graph is the impact in the first three years of life. The second graph is the risk factors for adult heart disease because of adverse childhood experiences later in life. So it's, it's a very clear relationship. Um, now, it is important to note that not all stress is bad. So adverse childhood experiences are toxic. It's that toxic stress level. But positive stress is required so that we actually develop the skills to deal with stress in life. Um, and positive stressors are things like uh, just normal day-to-day -day stressors. I don't know, standing up here and talking to you is probably a positive stressor for me. Uh, I hope I don't appear as stressed as I am. But it's a positive thing because I know that I can do it. I learn from that. I become more resilient. It's tolerable stress to me because I know I have support. I know that Daphne will be there to put an arm around my shoulder if I'm crying after this. I know that <laughs> I've got friends in the audience who will look after me if I fall off the stage. But it's tolerable because I have support. It would be toxic if you all started throwing things at me and I had no support around to mediate that. So please don't. Um, but toxic stress and Nadine Burke-Harris will talk about this in the video, is the big issue that we're trying to address here. Um, domestic violence is a fantastic example of toxic stress. I'm not going to say a lot about this because Nadine does it better, um, but watch out for the bit in the video where she talks about the bear. Just, and this is particularly of interest to you, we know that most women who leave a domestic violence situation will say that a factor in them leaving was when they realised it had an impact on their children. Now, that impact is something they observe after the children are born and often after the children are verbal. But with what we know about the impact of toxic stress in pregnancy on the foetus, we need to remember that experiencing domestic violence in pregnancy, for example, is impacting on that unborn baby. We need to find ways that we get better at communicating about that to members of the public, um, and especially women who are pregnant, so that they know that that impact is happening early. Because I think the perception out there is the baby's safe while it's in there. Nothing can hurt it while it's in there but we know that what's hurting mum is hurting the baby. Um, so this will be relevant to the bear, so we'll carry on, and we'll just have a quick talk about epigenetics. So, the nature-nurture debate has been around for years. We've known about that, we've you know, done things to address that, and then epigenetics came along. And it's a great term to bandy around, and it's great to say, oh yes, epigenetics, I can say it and I can spell it. But what does that actually mean? It means that, among other things, we've got an opportunity for intergenerational change, which is really exciting. So we know that environment affects genetic expression. The genes are the genes. They don't change, but they have little markers there that you can switch on and off with experience. So epigenetics is how your environment and the experiences that you have switch those genetic expression markers on or off. And it makes a big difference. The other thing that will happen is 
the, the very end of the gene that looks like a funny little tail, there it is, um, the telomeres. The length of the telomeres are what actually govern lifespan. Stress shortens telomeres. But you can make changes for the next generation. So with good attachment, with support, with a whole range of things, those changes go to the next generation. Um, Liz likes to say she knows that this slide has really made it because it's on Facebook. So everyone must know how important this is. I find it slightly creepy, but that's probably more about me. Um, but it's actually making the point that when a woman is pregnant with her daughter, it's at that point that the eggs that will be her grandchildren are developing. And so the genetic material for your grandchildren are developing inside your daughter while you're pregnant with her. So the genetic impacts of your experience while you're pregnant aren't just impacting one generation more, it's two. And that's a really important thing to remember because the positive experiences can also do that. So when we talk about things like, well, how can we impact those intergenerational things, this is one way. It's a fantastic opportunity. I am nearly out of time. I may have to recommend to you that you watch Nadine Burke Harris yourselves. Sorry. I know you're teed up to put it on, but we won't. You can watch Nadine on your own, is that okay? You want to watch it now? Okay, let's go to Nadine. Oh, this is Kangaroo Care. Excellent. Go for it. This one's from Sweden, um, but it's, it's really about the early impact of attachment and why it's so important. That policy that we've got about the skin-to-skin -skin contact, these are PREMs. The policy in this hospital of having early skin-to-skin -skin contact for PREMs, and this is how they look after their, their PREMs, um, they've reduced length of, sa of stay phenomenally. And I won't go into all the details, but I do wonder about that little baby on the top who's gone from being in a nice, warm, amniotic bath to Dad's hairy chest. <laughs> but it is very cute. Um, brain plasticity. 20% of people are resilient no matter what, was what that 20% slide were, was about. In answer to the question someone asked earlier about can't we do things later, yes. And resilience can be built, which is a great thing for the 80% of us that aren't genetically wired for resilience. Um, this is from the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, no, it's not. It's from the Harvard Centre on the Developing Child website, which I would recommend to any of you that want to read more about resilience. Um, and it's talking about a couple of things. So if we want to build resilience, there's two different ways that we can do it. And if we can do both, it's even better. We can load up the kid with positive experience, which will balance it towards resilience. The other thing that we can do, particularly through interventions in the antenatal period when everything's being formed, is we can actually move the fulcrum so that it is easier for those positive experiences to build resilience. So the more that we can do earlier, the better off that kid is going to be and the more they're going to get from those positive experiences and the more protected they will be from the negative experience impacts. Um, community support is building. Scotland has decided they're going to be the first ACE-aware nation. Uh, so they're working on that. In Canada, there's a huge amount happening 
around adverse childhood experience and addressing that. They're both very, very focused on adverse childhood experience. We've gone broader. Um, and we've gone with a whole 2,000 days experience because we want to lift up everyone and get better brain development for everyone, not just remediate those who are having a bad experience. But um, to build better lives, you need to build better brains is Canada's catchphrase. Um, and I think it's quite nice. We're trying to build a catchphrase of our own, but more of that later. Um, this is Nadine Burke-Harris. This is Nadine Burke-Harris with Liz Murphy. Now, we've had a number of calls for Liz Murphy to do her own TED talk. We're still trying to convince her. If you would like to add your voice to that, feel free. But what we'll do now is watch Nadine's TED talk, and then we'll have questions after. Hopefully that's given you a taste to go on to TED, search for Nadine Burke-Harris, and watch the rest of the TED talk. It is brilliant, and um, I know that at least one local health district has made it part of their orientation package for all staff now. So I would encourage you to watch it at least once um, and get the rest of the story. Nadine is fantastic. Um, and we'll see, you know, if we can make Liz the red-haired version. I'm not sure. Sorry? Yeah, it's, it's now become a lot more widespread. And we would like to think we are partly responsible for that. But... Um, it is, it's fantastic. One of the sad things is Vince Felitti, who actually did the ACE study, spent forever trying to get um, people to actually take it on board and do something about it. And it wasn't until you had a gorgeous woman in a red dress up there doing a TED talk that people started to listen. But she, um, she works with Vince on this stuff and I, I think that she puts it beautifully. So please have a look at the rest. I'm just going to run through. There's... Um, this is a film that Scotland actually used. It's an American film, but Scotland rolled it out across the nation around resilience and the biology of stress and the science of hope. You can look this one up on the web as well. There's a little two-minute trailer that's worth having a look at. But it actually is really good, I think, for clinicians to remember the role of resilience. And in Canada, where they're doing a lot of this work around adverse childhood experiences, in the maternity units, they've started asking the... Um, ACE questionnaire and, on the flip side, a resilience questionnaire and factoring that into their care. Now here in New South Wales, we're not in favour of using it as a written screen because there, there is some evidence that it can um, put a very negative spin on, um, on your life, really. But we are in favour of it becoming part of history taking for every clinician who works with people because not only will it give you an idea of what needs to go in place for a child, but if you're working with an adult, it gives you an idea of exactly how you need to tailor your treatment. Because people with um, adverse childhood experiences early in life often respond to treatment differently, respond to drugs differently, and you don't get... So you'll have to treat things like asthma more aggressively to get the same result, for example. So we'd like to see that happen. Now... I don't have time to take you through the implementation part of things. This is from the framework, but what I will do is go into a lot more detail on the 13th of September with the child and family health nurses. And I have been asked to, to encourage you 
to come along to that one as well. Um, but I'll go through the implementation process more there. And I'll go through this material, which is on communication, uh, or the research that's been done in Australia and overseas on effectively communicating child develop messages to parents and communities. Um, and I'll talk through all of this material. Now, I will liaise with Amy and actually get the materials out to you. Um, with the implementation process, there will be an implementation draft, uh, a draft implementation strategy coming out to local health districts in September, October for consultation. Keep your eyes open, talk to your managers, try to make sure that you actually have a say, because I'd love to hear from you. So thank you very much for listening. Um, we're expecting, as I said, to have the draft out September, October, and I hope that you'll all comment. Um, I'm very happy to hear from you by email. I'm sorry we didn't have enough time today, but I'll hand back to Amy. <laughs>